We are live. Hello and greetings. Welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on Air. It's December 9th, 2015, and today we are really excited to welcome a group of colleagues who are fostering conversations about inquiry and the role of building schools as learning communities. This is the first in a two-part series on this topic, or these topics, I suppose. <laughs> this week we're going to focus on the ways educators are thinking together about inquiry and connected practice. And then next Wednesday, we'll, have, we'll come back and move the conversation a bit more closely into the classroom itself and connect with students, engage with these practices alongside uh, their, their teachers. Um, and these conversations are inspired by a few things. Um, I mean, here, they, they are both historic conversations as well as emerging conversations. So here at, at Innovator, they're the perfect mix uh, to bring. Um, there's also an organization that Diana runs called Inquiry Schools that's doing a range of interesting work around the country. And then more recently, a book was just published called Building School 2.0, How to Create the Schools That We Need by Chris Lehman here and Zach Chase. So um, the series is also being co-streamed at ConnectedLearning.tv, which is at ConnectedLearning.tv. <laughs> and we uh, send special thanks to them for their support to make this happen. I'm your host, by the way. I'm Christina Cantrell, the Associate Director of National Programs at the National Writing Project. I'm based here in Philadelphia and connecting to you live from my living room. So thanks, everybody, for coming today. I wanted to let our guests just introduce themselves briefly and starting from screen left, or my screen left, I suppose. So, Adina, maybe you could come on and give your name, where you are, and then maybe a sense of why you're here today. Sure. So, again, my name is Adina Sullivan, and I'm a K-12 Educational Technology Coordinator for San Marcos Unified School District, which is just north of San Diego here in California. And we have been working with INCRI, this is, uh, the, we started working with it in 2011 and with teachers in 2012 on using INCRI as the basis for our district one-to-one uh, -one program. Great, thank you. Chris, you're up next. Uh, hi, I'm Chris Lehman. I'm the um, founding principal of Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia and the head of innovation for the School District of, of Philadelphia and chair of the Board of Inquiry Schools, along which uh, Diana uh, does all of the heavy lifting on. Um, I have, uh, I mean, for me, SLA, the school that we started now, our, we're actually open two and are about to open our third, um, is built fully around the idea of inquiry. Our core values are inquiry, research, collaboration, presentation, reflection. And the fascinating things is um, after 10 years of uh, starting a school and running a school that, that is based on the idea of inquiry, I actually believe even more deeply in the idea that learning uh, is about the questions we ask. And it turns out probably life is too. So um, uh, yeah, it's, this is kind of the sort of overarching passion of my life is figuring out how we do this better. Awesome, great. Thanks, Diana. And Diana Laufenberg, I am joining you from next door to Adina um, as I'm working with her district right now on some inquiry work. Um, I am the executive director of Inquiry Schools, former um, classroom teacher for 16 years, um, and have been for the last three and a half years doing a whole range of projects that really are based in inquiry at its core, but it stems from new school development, um, which Chris referenced a little bit. 
um, as well as school transformation work, which is a different kind of lifting in the in the realm of inquiry systems and structures, and then also more um, professional development around what does it look like in the classroom and, and how do you approach that from the classroom level. And that's the work that I'm doing with Adina um, this week in San Marcos. Great, thank you, and thanks for letting us come into your spaces as everybody's actively working and being together and um, and allowing us this view into the work that you're doing together, so thanks. Um, so uh, just quickly, for those of you who might be watching this Hangout live, we want to encourage you to post any thoughts or ideas or questions you might have uh, via the Q&A feature that's on Google. Um, but you can also tweet at, uh, to the hashtag Connected Learning, and you can also follow conversations on Twitter there. So we encourage you to do that. And we're going to start with some discussion questions, um, but then uh, we're really happy to bring in conversations that might be happening on Twitter or via the Q&A feature. So please feel free to ask any questions, and we'll try to pick them up in our conversation. So OK, well, let's see. To get us started here, I wanted to sort of throw out a, a question to the whole group. Let me get my question here. Um, you know, in the and just sort of hear how you all respond to this. So in the description for this webinar or this conversation, we mentioned that you all are working on building schools that are, quote, in and of our time, for our time, for the children, unquote. And this is a beautiful vision and a beautiful idea. And I was wondering if you could give us a sense of what this looks like in your experience, maybe even sort of what it feels like and sounds like. You know, what, it, what, what is your experience of, of this work? Who ever wants to go first? Uh, I guess, I mean, it, I wrote those, so I guess I should say those. I should start. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I mean, on a, there's, gosh, there's so many ways to take that. I think fundamentally, um, you know, I think that every student has the right to ask the question, why do I need to know this? Uh, I think that we have to, we should have schools that reflect the world's, the, kid living, the kids living today. So it shouldn't be special or weird that they have a piece of technology in their hands. We should stop talking about using technology as doing a technology project, but rather we should start to make classrooms authentic places where the way we live our lives is reflected in the way that we teach and learn, right? I, I you know, the idea that um, you know we we write differently, shop differently, vote differently, and yet school looks the same in so many places just strikes me as really weird, right? I mean, you know, like how many of us are gonna you know uh, you know now consume media differently, and yet Netflix is blocked in most districts. Um, as an example, right? Like when we would be bringing in those medias, we treat text as the only way we consume information in a lot of schools, and yet to be, you know, to not be multi multimodal in the way that we both consume and produce information these days is to not be fully literate. And so, you know, like which dovetails nicely with the work that digital is, you know, like and all the rest of it. But that's just one example, right? Um, but just more than that, we should ask kids to solve complex problems in their communities. We should ask them to weigh in on what matters. We should ask them to build solutions for the problems they see around them in their world, both locally and then sort of larger than that. And now I'll shut up and let other people talk. 
Adina, why don't you jump in? Mike, Adina. Unmute, unmute. So, <laughs> so I come at this from a slightly different place than where um, Chris is coming from for, in, in a little bit of a way in that Chris is looking at building schools from the ground up and we are really looking at how do you take an institution that exists, a district that exists and does well in the old way and say, and now we need to make a change, and the reasons for that change. So we really had to look at what does that mean, why are we doing this, and helping folks to see that we really need to change the way we, that students experience school, that they're no longer doing school, they're no longer doing the game of school, but they're actually learning and in meaningful ways and understand what they're doing and why and the connection it has to themselves and to the larger world now and in their futures. And that's where we are now uh, working to take students and teachers because most teachers haven't experienced this either um, and helping them to be really successful in a really an environment that's really, really new for them. And then I'll jump in. <clears throat> um, so I, I have the interesting um, job of bridging both of the spaces that Adina and, and Chris speak of because I am part of New School Projects, but I'm also um, knee-deep in some really dynamic school transformation projects as well. And the thing that occurs to me over and over and over again is that um, we have it in the in our capacity to, to make school much more student-centered and our systems and structures side of things really needs to start bending toward the students instead of the systems and structures bending just towards the adults in the system and, and really starting to untangle what that means when you build it from the base up, how do you do that, but also how do you transition from the traditional um, to something that's a little less um, adult-centered and something that's much more student-centered. And so that's kind of where that lives for me as well. Great. great. That's, that's a, a great segue. I'm hearing an echo. I'm sorry. Thanks, Diana. <laughs> um, maybe you could um, keep going a little bit and, and talk about the role of inquiry in that, like, leaning towards work that you describe. I know that's what you do at inquiry school, so maybe you could talk about that a little bit. So one of the big things that uh, it, it, the, the process of inquiry is the process of asking questions and, and unending amounts of questions and that everything is kind of in the realm of potential to be questioned. Um, traditional systems don't always love that process. Um, part of my role in a lot of the, the districts that I've been in is to say the uncomfortable thing or ask the question that nobody that has to also shop at the same grocery store would ask inside that system because it's something that is somebody else's um, you know sacred moment there of we don't we don't we don't touch the bus schedule or we don't we don't mess with lunch or the master schedule is something that will never change you know people really live inside these spaces where they don't question some of their basic structural systems that then yield really uninteresting spaces for kids and teachers to work in and it really is a matter of walking through a process with people to say you know what is going well where are you struggling um, why did you make that decision what is motivating that particular set of choices have you considered 
evaluating X, Y, or Z and really starting to ask deep and meaningful questions about some of the systems and structures. Because the way that most schools have ended up there is just through pattern and habit. And some of them have been largely unexamined for decades. Um, and so the work becomes being someone who can start modeling the process of how to ask those kind of big bold questions about your own systems and structures that then can support the classroom side of things because one of the most frustrating things that I watch large districts do is ask their teachers to embrace something like inquiry but they themselves are not willing to embrace the process and then you get this pretty serious tension between what the classroom is being asked versus what the system is doing to bend toward it. That's great. It's really interesting to take the systems approach. Go ahead, Chris. Well, and, and, and I just want to hop in because this is the thing that Diana and I really both try to do all of the time, and it, it you know, is this idea that the way to inquiry is through inquiry, right? And um, and you know, there's a chapter in the book called "Be One School," and what that idea, one of those the sort of core pieces of that is that, like, if we want kids to learn through inquiry, we've got to let adults learn through inquiry. You can't lecture this stuff. You can't mandate this stuff. And the other really amazing thing about when you do that is, you know, and as we look at inquiry schools, tries to both build new schools, um, not only in Philadelphia but in other places, but also sort of work on school transformation is even with these core values, even if your core values are the same, even if these things are, are even if there are some common practices, the answers you come up with differ from school to school to school, which is really powerful because you are engaging people in answering, like if the thing that we have, that Diana and I have done over time is come up with some really powerful questions that we think people can ask, um, number one, those are just the starter questions because by asking questions you generate more questions. But the cool thing is, is you generate unique answers. And that's what prevents this from being a, ever from just being a black box, right? That's what, that's what creates empowerment. That's what creates engagement. That's what creates ownership in the process. And that's what means that every school will be the best version of itself where it is, not just saying we want 100 SL schools that look exactly like SLA all over the country, right? Um, and that, that notion is really important to what we're talking about. Great. And, and, and what I'm struck by, and um, Adina, I'm wondering if we could sort of move to you, actually, because I was thinking about the, the role of the adults and you're talking about all the adults, you know, like there's, there's, you know, the sort of the system of adults and students asking these questions and context-specific questions and that, you know. Um, and, Dina, can you talk a little bit about what that process has been like in your context and, um, you know, sort of how this sort of a systems approach impacts teacher learning? Yeah, I, I'm really fortunate that when my district decided to go this way, we did it in a way that I think was was very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And we really came at it from uh, the perspective of the district wanting the district, you know, them, um, upper management board, what have you, saying we would like to put more technology in our schools. And in looking at that, we did a lot of study and it was really inquiry-based study, and we realized, you know what, you, you cannot just put technology in schools. Bright, shiny doesn't fix it. Bright, shiny doesn't give you engagement. It gives you interest 
for a little while, but not true engagement and, and, and student understanding. It doesn't make a significant impact. So what do we have to do? We need to change the way we teach. And we included uh, members from the board of directors, from superintendent, uh, uh, director, different uh, curriculum directors, principals, teachers, uh, community members, universities, parents, and really had the, this discussion about what would this look like and what makes the most sense. Asking some of those questions of ourselves and really thinking it through and processing it and researching it and studying and, and asking all those questions to come up with the fact that we wanted to use inquiry as the way we help teachers do a better job of using technology in the classroom. And so we brought that in and uh, brought in really, really slowly. We, 2011 wasn't a really good time for budgets, at least not in California, I don't think anywhere else. Um, so we, we had to start it very small and choose people very, very carefully to be involved, choose schools carefully based on whether leadership was ready for it and willing to kind of take this risk, because this is a risk. When you are in a system that does well through the traditional measures and you ask people to change what they are doing, Mm -hmm. that's difficult. That's a risk folks do not take lightly. Uh, educators tend to be um, habit-driven. <laughs> We've done what we have done, and if you, what you've done works, then why would I change that? So really helping folks understand that this is how, what a difference this makes for students, and we brought folks in for a two-year program. They had to apply the first couple of years to say that they wanted to be involved and wanted to commit to this and really work on inquiry first and then the connection to technology second. The inquiry has to be first. So now we are, um, we went from to, uh, 40 teachers the first year. We're now up to 223 teachers. Um, we've got nine groups running right now. Um, but out of a thousand teachers, that's still only a small debt. But I think it's really important to build that slowly and build your capacity because what we've seen over time is we went from our first group of teachers who really were afraid to make the change and that it wouldn't be accepted by the students, by the parents, by their administrators, to people asking us, can I be involved? And principals saying, yes, can I add more teachers to this? So now it's become a normal part of what we do because we built it slowly and didn't make it a new district mandate. Here's what we're all going to do. You will all do it now. This is the way we're going to, you know, this is the way it's all going to work now. It came, it had to come with everybody discussing it together and then building capacity slowly so that you get more buy-in. Um, I remember this from the book too. So just to, because Chris mentioned the book and I wanted to, this idea that, um, Evolution is actually a really important part of change. So there's the book itself. I only have it on Kindle, so I can't even look it up right now. Um, but I'm just wondering if Chris or Diana want to speak to that, just in, um, or Chris, he's got the book right there, um, because that's what I remember reading in the book that there is, you know, this idea of change is one thing, but then how do you actually make change happen in a way that's healthy for a community and supportive of the community and and ultimately where you can really see the benefits for the students, which is what Adina said really is the sort of pivot point, right? But, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, Diana will say this better than I will, but I'll start. Like, you know, we should, you know, 
hit Clayton Christensen off the side of the head with a brick or something. Um, disruptive innovation is bad for children, right? Like, disruption is not what you want kids to go through. And it's also not what you want teachers to go through. And it, and it fundamentally doesn't, you know, like, cell phones aren't schools, right? So we can sit there and say, like, oh, you know, we disrupted, you know, whatever, and now we have smartphones and everything's better and yay. But, like, you, you know, when you're dealing with people in a caring profession, when you're dealing with people who work with children, you're dealing with children, you don't want to be like, let's change really hard and who cares if it's painful and bad, we'll get to the other side, it'll be great, because kids are only in third grade once, you know, and teachers spend their lives, you know, being really thoughtful about their work. Um, so the idea of evolutionary change, the idea of helping people get there, the idea that we're going to do this in a way that brings people along instead of leaves them behind to sort of, I mean, and I did that by accident, but like, um, is really important because people want to do, you know, I really do believe that the overwhelming majority of teachers want to do right by their children and do this in a thoughtful, important way. I believe the overwhelming majority of kids want, a, want an education that is empowering and authentic and, and meaningful to them. And if we just say what we did before sucked and now we're going to do something different and who cares about how the pain points as we go through it, you're not respecting the lives that people are living in, in these institutions, students and teachers. And we have to do that. We don't have the luxury or we don't have the right to disrupt other people's lives in ways that end up doing harm to children and adults. And I can jump in there, Christina, just to, to piggyback on that, that taking all of that into account and then figuring out where to go from there and how to pull off a kind of a humane process of evolution, um, for me, lives inside of this this idea that we need to build flexible systems and build flexible spaces where and it, it brings back in that inquiry where you never stop asking those questions and you never stop you know uh, you know the what's your best idea and how do you keep poking at it to make sure that you are definitely being the best kind of critical analyzer of your own ideas and really continuing to ask those questions but then that you're building a road and not turning on a light switch. It's a lot of people really want something that's easy. Um, disruption is almost easier because you can just stop and start. Actually having a system flow from who they are to who they want to be, their aspirational mission statement, their aspirational goals is tricky and tough and finding that space between and using nuance and relevance for a particular community around their issues that is tough space to navigate um, and when you do it thoughtfully and intentionally it is change that that digs in for the long haul it is change for the long range um, and it's not something that just is done in three years because the superintendent changes out and I know, um, you know, Adina can definitely jump in with um, of some more ideas about what that looks like on the student side as well. Yeah, the, the student side um, has been really interesting for us because we have definitely, we, we pulled in a third party um, the first year that, that we started the program to really look at how this impacted teachers and what the effects really were and how they were really feeling about it and how it impacted students. And we were surprised on, on, on both sides of it. And what we found for students when we when we did 
surveys um, of students who participated in the program and those who did not, there were some pretty significant differences. And one of those, um, one of the ones I think is most important is that students felt that the learning was really designed for them, that it was truly personalized. We talk a lot about personalized learning and, and computer programs that will personalize the learning and all this kind of good stuff. But what these teachers were doing was basic inquiry and really was basic that first year. But the students, because they had some voice in what was happening, because it was connected to them in some way, no matter how minor, and they had some say also in how what they created, how they researched it, that whole process, they felt that the learning was really meant for them. They felt truly that it was personalized. Um, they also talked about the fact that they felt um, instruction was more cross-curricular and that's something we didn't we didn't specifically address with teachers because we didn't think it was going to go well if we tried to make that um, a key piece of what we wanted them to do. Uh, we wanted it to happen but didn't want to push it and students felt that it was happening. It became a natural part of what teachers did, um, especially at the beginning in the elementary grades um, where people were stopped teaching, okay, now we're done with reading, now we're going to do science, now we're going to do math. They started to connect things better and the students were noticing that and it was, it was making an impact. Um, they talked about the fact that they were more active learners and not just passive, passive. And that's, it should be an obvious and yet it's not, it isn't. We're just really used to, I am the teacher, I stand here, I give you information, you will receive the information, you will give it back to my test, we will go to the next unit, life will be good, I will be on my, my timeline, that's great. And the teachers started to change the way they did that and students really reacted well to it um, and felt like they were active learners really participating in the process and an important piece of the process and not just passively doing what they were asked to do because the teacher asked them to do it. And that's, those things are huge. And that was year one that's continued to grow as we moved to where now we have um, teachers who are, they're actually, they're with us today um, for our session. And they, even before they, they came to be a, a formal part of the program, they were already starting to do some of this work. They were seeing others do a little bit of it. They took it on and really started doing some of this with stuff with students and now it's really building a movement even outside of our specific program and so that's that's a huge accomplishment what those students are getting now is significantly different than what they were getting four years ago. Wow that's powerful um, really important to hear so thank you for sharing that and um, I feel like you know it would be lovely to continue to hear how that evolves over time. I'm struck by a couple of things and I don't, you know, we can, Chris and Diana, you can jump in here. I guess that, um, I mean, this piece about cross-curricular I think is fascinating, actually. <laughs> um, like the ways that, again, is that about um, uh, the, that, the inquiry, like would you say like that's what opens up those spaces for cross-curricular work? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, it would. Despite everybody's best intentions to stay <laughs> or whatever. You know, the funny thing is this, and it's one of the things, like there's still a space for um, 
uh, you know, folks to plan interdisciplinary projects, right, like where the English teacher and the history teacher get together and plan a project together. But what actually starts to kind of happen when in an inquiry-based space, when you create the space and when you use some other tools like essential questions and, and, and grade-wide themes and all the rest of this, the other pieces of the puzzle, is classes become lenses, not silos, which is awesome. Um, uh, you know, and that's when it when you know, like, so when you you attack a question through a scientific lens, it doesn't mean uh, you're always doing. Um, you know, it, it means that you're bringing in those other questions, right? Like, what are the social implications of this science, of this project I'm doing? What are the historical implications of it? You know, like, what were the things? And so you, you classes become lenses by which we attack questions and problems, not silos of information. And that's a fundamental shift in thinking about why we take the classes we take. And then, and then I was just going to jump in with um, an example of that, um, and I'll reference Zach, who is, wasn't able to join us today, but when Zach and I worked at SLA as teachers, um, it was uh, as interdisciplinary connected teachers, he was the ELA side and I was the social studies side, and we found some incredibly powerful ways to ask really large umbrella style questions that um, bridge the space between our subjects um, that the students started to see all of this um, space that um, they didn't always see before that that was ripe for the cross-disciplinary the interdisciplinary work um, one of my seniors once he was in government and in a science class and in a senior um, reading class and he had done some research in his his English class which then led to his choice for a project in um, science which then became his lobbying project in government you know like he started to see the connection between that his learning and when given the opportunity to ask authentic and real questions that he was the driver of how he moved through those concepts and he just kept finding more and more um, connections and for Lehman's benefit that was Rashawn he did a really interesting um, you know, set of connections around that, and and Zach and I worked very um, intently on trying to be um, thoughtful in the way that we did that work. The cool thing, of course, is that Rashawn is now doing that writ large in his life, acting as a connector and building these spaces where uh, the learning that he did at SLA. Now, I mean, he's doing the stuff at Watson University. He's doing all the stuff with connections and building these bridges across folks who don't usually talk to one another. Um, which is, and he will speak very powerfully about how working at SLA and, and, and working, you know, as a student with folks like Diana and Zach and all the rest of it informed why he now thinks the way he does and why he sort of makes these connections the way that he does in his life, which is just kind of a neat thing. Um, and thinking about you guys working as educators together, um, in the book, um, uh, Chris Sack, um, well, let me just say the book is 35, uh, I'm sorry, 35, 95 theses, right? <laughs> and um, and then each thesis has a, um, what's the section called? I'm sorry. From theory to practice. From theory to practice, yeah. Um, and so, you know, you go through these 95 and each one has a from theory to practice piece to it. Um, which is kind of cool and useful on itself, I think. Um, but we we had pulled out this one chapter where you talk about saying 
say more but talk less. Right. And to me, that's really about like being a teacher. And, and, and so I'm wondering if you could sort of explain that and what that sort of looks like and what that's about. Yeah, I, well, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, on a very fundamental way, don't fall in love with the sound of your own voice, right? I mean, and don't assume that just because you said it, kids learn it. Um, so if we can, we can have a greater impact um, uh, if our voice is used to spur other voices, right? We can, we're better teachers when when we use our voice to ask the next question or to connect the dots between two student things and say, oh, that's interesting, I heard this, I heard that, it makes me wonder this, what do you think? Um, and even just as the chapter says, like the difference between saying, explain that, which can be a little kind of in your face versus say more, right? Which is really, you know, um, awesome and powerful. Um, so yeah, it's about learning, you know, Learning when to shut up in the classroom and make sure your voice is not the only one. And Dina, did you want to follow up on that? Sort of like how you all have to get, what's the process of getting ready for doing that kind of thing? Yeah, I just, for folks who are like, yes, this, this sounds great. I've, the book is fabulous and I want to get into this and what they're saying is, is so right on. And if you jump in, <laughs> Without doing some careful work, you are in for a world of hurt. Um, it will it will die a slow, painful death. <laughs> so there's definitely some work that needs to happen. And one of those things that we definitely learned, um, wish we had known at the beginning, um, is that you really need to spend some time helping the adults involved build curiosity. Um, as educators, most of us went through the traditional system of sit, listen, spit back, what have you, and so it, it, they're, they're not good at it and it's very difficult to do more and say less and to get kids to ask questions and how to facilitate it the way all that works if you're not capable of doing that, and I mean capable, but if you're not really in a place where you feel comfortable doing that. And we've had teachers who, you know, will, will do some of this stuff and they really, they're doing exactly the same thing that students will do, which is sit and wait for you to give them the answer. Because we know the system, that if you just wait long enough, somebody will tell you what the answer is supposed to be and we can all move on. Um, and so I, th I think it's really, really important to to build that curiosity and to help teachers find that within themselves and to be, be constructing that for themselves. But along with that, their administrators, those people that are going to be evaluating them and walking into their classrooms and, and seeing what's going on, if they're not truly doing that, they may have signed off and said, yeah, I think this is a great program and we should try this. But if they're not actively doing those kinds of things, they don't understand what they're seeing and the teachers don't feel comfortable taking that risk. They don't believe them when they say, yes, I think this is great. They say, yeah, no, you're going to find a way to ding me. So I think we, we have to spend that time with teachers and with administrators building that curiosity piece and what that's all about before they will really understand how it works with students and be able to do that with students. And, and I'll just... Yep. Quickly um, piggyback on that because what what she's referring to is such a, a a deep humane piece of this work with which is 
uh, relationships around trust between different levels and different um, pieces of your system and it's between students and teachers. Students need to have that same trust around inquiry. Um, I used to push kids to do something a little new or different or kind of reach a little farther and if they didn't trust that I wasn't coming with uh, the D grade for them in that work, they wouldn't go into that space with me. Much the same, your teachers and your principals need to know that when they push into this work and take an academic risk, that there is not some kind of um, you know punitive mark coming for them, but rather um, that it is accepted as a part of the growth toward and the evolution toward something more or different um, than what has always been done. Yeah, that's great. It feels why it's so key to have that systems approach. You know, it's both intimate and you know political and connected. Um, so thank you. Um, I wanted to take a moment and just say to people who might be watching live that um, we're happy to take questions or comments and bring some thoughts into the discussion if you have anything to contribute. We're about, you know, 15 minutes um, here. Um, and I know I had a question I want to ask about from a sort of writing project um, connected learning lens. Um, so let me just throw that out there and then invite other people to talk and um, discuss. I was sort of curious, like from a writing project stands, you know, we're, we're often thinking about writing <laughs> um, and then which is an act of creating, an act of making. And I was wondering about sort of the role of making and creating in the work of inquiry too. Um, and I know that um, Creating things is kind of a key idea at um, SLA, and I was wondering if Adina, if there's experience with with that in sort of starting to like tap into what you're talking about with teachers. Like, what are some of the ways that we get more creative? That we start to think about ourselves as creators and and producers of knowledge and and engagers in knowledge, and not just always sort of consumers of other people's knowledge. So yeah. I, it's an interesting piece, and I think part of that is giving teachers choice. Um, it's sort of a sore point for a lot of folks in districts that you are told which PD you are going to go to, and that's the one you're going to go to. And there's there has to be a better balance between these are the ones we need everyone to have an understanding of as a district. And here are the things you could have a choice over what really interests you. So, for example, I am in, I am uh, eyeballs deep in, in scheduling out a, a PD, a district wide teacher PD, where teachers were given 30 different choices for what they could attend. Um, and they're, they're going to get to choose which things really interest them. What is it that they really want to know more about or want to get more information on or spend more time on? Or uh, folks have said, yeah, I didn't know what that was, so I signed up for it because I thought, hey, I want to learn something new. Giving folks that opportunity to make choices for themselves, I think, is a really important first start. I think then as we're doing PD with them, doing it, not in a sit-and-get fashion that the PD we do with teachers has to be more interactive. They need to be doing actual work during that time and constructing information themselves where, you know, we do this, we, we 
we run it the same way or we say, okay, what questions do you have? Here's the, the key guiding question. What questions do you have? Now let's actually find the information that goes with that so you are constructing the knowledge, not me just telling it to you. So if we, could, if we run our PD the same way we would want to have teachers work in the classroom, I think that's another step. Um, and then it can work for teachers to say, okay, now I see what this maker movement is about. I see what uh, Hour of Code is about. I can see where this all fits better because they've experienced it themselves. You know, it's interesting. I'm struggling with this. You know, this is sort of how we do professional development as, as a district is one of the things that is now sort of I'm being asked to weigh in on as the, the innovation guy in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, how we create more opportunity for people to learn meaningfully is such a massive challenge in a district of, you know, 140,000 kids and seven, 8,000 teachers or whatever we have in Philadelphia these days, 218 schools. And, um, you know, we are trying to, we are struggling with, we are challenged by understanding that we are trying to move from a district where, you know, that's the school office, you know, the, the central office sort of dictated to the field and now we're starting to say, well, we want 440, that's the district office, to be more school facing. And what I've been kind of coming to a realization about in my own head as I think about that stuff is school facing doesn't mean inquiry driven, right? School facing doesn't mean everything that I think I want it to mean. School facing means we're giving people what they need, or at least we think we are, but there can still be a very paternalistic aspect to school facing, and one of what what strikes me about what you're talking about is this idea, um, and it's almost it's flushing. You know, this gets maybe into a little bit more of the sort of politics behind what we believe and all the rest of it. But like, it's flushing the paternalism out of the system, right? It's flushing the we know what you need and we're going to give it to you out of the system, and instead. Again, funnily enough, asking better questions. What do you think we you need? What are the things that we can do for you? What are the things that you can do for yourselves that we can facilitate, that we can enable um, and empower? And um, in a system as large as Philadelphia, um, that becomes a really big question, right? Like that becomes a fascinating question. Um, you know, and, and one that as you try and solve system-wide, um, really challenging. You know, I, I one of the things you said was is really important. It's not it's more that one step to say, okay, let's let you decide what you actually need, and then find a way for you to choose that. But there's also providing the resources and the tools for teachers to be able to do their own learning. Teachers don't know where to go. To, to do that work for themselves if they're interested in something. They don't know, that, you know, it's a very small group of, of educators, um, sort of those of us who are used to being the nerdy, geeky weirdos who are like, oh, let me go out and find this and connect with these people and learn this stuff and, you know, the reason why we all know each other. Um, but it's, it's, we need to be able to, to provide the, the systems and the resources and the tools for teachers to be able to do that on their own as well. And I think that's a huge part of it, that it's okay to be interested on your own and here's how you do that. They need those tools.
And then I'll jump in. We had a, a question come in from Twitter uh, from a woman named Helen DeWard, who's in California. Um, and she asked, how do, you, how do school leaders become lead learners and risk takers as models for teachers and build their own inquiries? And kind of what, what both Dina and Chris are talking about are, are absolute fascination in the traditional model with the idea of control and compliance as the basic overarching structure of how we've done things in the past. And as long as we continue to lean toward control and compliance instead of lean toward um, innovation and creativity, we're never going to get a different outcome. So how do these school leaders become the lead learners and risk takers as models? Is that they themselves have to examine their own um, kind of trending toward a control and compliance structure that they have with their own teachers, that their superiors have with them. And it's it's a it's a very intentional process because you again bump into other people's uh, touchy points around do what I said because I told you to do it instead of I see how you're proceeding based on your interest your needs um, what you find um, as compelling to investigate and when you start to do that kind of work you have to have much more flexible boundary around the work. There cannot be a hard edge because a hard edge means that you're in the telling and the um, mandating land of growth and learning instead of the where where is your you know phrase I like to use a lot is where is your edge of possible you know how do you kind of push into those um, kind of unknown spaces of we haven't gone here before but this is interesting and how do we move in that and so it's permission, trust, control, compliance, creativity, innovation. Those are really kind of some dichotomies to evaluate in your own system. Because if you want your teachers to be innovative and creative and be lead learners, you yourself have to find spaces to do that. You have to be the one finding the interesting ed reform articles. You have to be the one um, demonstrating different ways to lead professional development. You have to be the one who values their voice more than yours when you need to um, kick around some big ideas or ask for input. You have to be the one doing the same work that you want them to be doing um, and just live it and breathe it. Great. I um, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I was wondering if there's a lot of sometimes, I mean, innovation's one thing. And I mean, we're an educator innovator, so we you know, do it too. You know, sometimes I'm like, wait, what do we mean, right? And then, and then we start to talk about creativity, and there's a lot of sort of, you know, potential baggage around that too. Like people are nervous to be creative, or, or, but sometimes it actually just means creating something, you know, or starting with like that act. I'm wondering if we can just like talk about that a little bit more. Like, how do we practice leaning towards innovation and creativity rather than control and compliance? Um, and how do we encourage each other that way? Because sometimes it can feel kind of scary, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it is, right? I mean, and mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, Gary Steger talks about this a little bit, where, um, you know, he says, you know, the only thing worse than a traditional classroom is a bad progressive one, right? Because the truth of this matter is, unfortunately, is, is that when this stuff goes off the rails, it doesn't do so quietly, right? I mean, it goes. You know, we go way wrong when we go wrong, and so how you um, how you deal with that is challenging. Um, 
And and I think you know Adina talked about this earlier. One of the some of the toughest places to change are high achieving places because you know it's like don't you know we got six kids into the Ivy Leagues last year. Don't mess with us. Um, and that's I mean the first thing is is there's nothing wrong with in fact there's something very powerful about um, honoring fear, right? And and owning that people will do strange things if you. Um, if you ask if you if they act from their places of fear. So when you take the time as facilitators of this and when you take the time I mean, you know, there's gotta be some therapy involved, right? I mean like, you know, to to you know, kinda make it funny, but you know, you have to unpack why people are afraid of creation. You've got to ask people what their concerns are. You know, it goes back to the question we always ask, what's the worst consequence of your best idea? Like, so okay, you're gonna do this. What are you afraid of? What do you think might happen that you're not gonna like, that you can't control, that you won't be able to, whatever? And then one, you have to ask the question of like, what are you willing to live with? And what are you gonna mitigate? What what are the battles you're always what are the new battlegrounds you gotta fight? Um all of that, all of those are really important questions. And and if you don't go through that process and you're like, it's gonna be great, bunnies and duckies and yay, and then like when it's not perfect because nothing ever is, people are gonna retreat. And so you have to say, like, all right, let's problem solve before we even start. Let's start asking, let's go through the problems of saying like what's what are we afraid of? What's gonna happen? Oh my god, what's so scary? And yeah. owning it. And and treating it as real. Not being like, not asking that question to dismiss, but asking that question to honor. And well, and I think you you also have to. I'm sorry, Chris. No, you no, also no. have to be willing to take that risk to explain. I am taking a risk, being really transparent with your own risk taking and what happens because it's well, I thought that was going to be okay, but guess what? I probably need to make a change to that, or we need, you know, I being really transparent that it is not easy, it is not simple, it is not quick. And that you are learning along with everybody else. Um, it's reminding me of uh, my colleague Chad Sansing um, talks often about creating spaces of permission for other people to 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 take risks and try something out, and and thinking together as a community that we. And and what what I heard and what you said is that in that transparency, we're actually starting to create those spaces where other people can kind of also try it too. And and um, it feels so important when we're trying to build these communities and build them as systems that um, and think about them together. Um, we are starting to get um, close on time, so I just wanted to sort of maybe we could sort of all have some for final thoughts that we want to take forward out of this conversation and or thoughts that we want to take into next week's conversation because we'll sort of come we'll come back to this um, and uh, and this has been great and you know our hour is up already so <laughs> um, anyone want to jump in there with some sort of final thoughts it's worth the risk look at the reasons why you want to make this kind of a change and then understand that it's it's worth this the really the small truly small amount of pain it's going to take for you personally to get to a really big impact for students. Um, you know, a couple things. Number one, uh, come to Educon. We're going to unpack all these ideas for three days. It's the last weekend in January. You can go to Educon.org to register. Come to Educon. Come to Educon. Come to Educon. Jamie will be there. And better yet. 
not only will Jamie be there, but Jamie's sister will be there mocking Jamie, which is a great reason to come. Um, more importantly, I think uh, the thought I, I, I'm sort of consumed by these days is understanding asking and questions isn't a, isn't a half an hour PD. This can be slow learning. This can be book study. This can be understanding um, that smart people have been talking about these ideas for 100 years and know when and where they have been and, and take the time to immerse yourself. I mean, sure, you know, here's one book, but like Schoolmaster of the Great City, Dewey, the, connect, the, the, the Progressives, Debbie Meyer, there is a huge history of this stuff. And being a scholar of it will make you a better practitioner of it. Well, and, and both studying the history of and never stop reading the brilliant minds of today and finding connections between them. Um, your own personal inquiry into your learning process and continuing to find new and different voices to add to and clarify and magnify the work that you're doing so that um, you continue to find connections between the other people doing this work. I mean, this is how we've been stitched together. I mean, we're not people that geographically would have found each other um, in any other way than continuing to find connections and reading and asking more and deeper questions about our own practice. And so just a, a continued attention in all the systems that we work in. Who are you reading? What are you... <laughs> <laughs> Who are you reading? What is um, you know what is demanding your attention, and um, and how can you continue to participate in that really robust conversation? Um, there's a couple of books being shown right now, both of which I'm a big fan of, um, and not just because I'm mentioned in both of them, but because yeah, they're pretty they're pretty lovely. Um, but yeah, th those are. <laughs> Those are my um, my big final thoughts that I'll share whilst I laugh at Chris being ridiculous. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yes, and and the books are both history and current educators writing about their work in practice, um, and we continue to bring those folks together too at educatorinnovator.org, which. You know, thank you for tuning in today, and encourage you to come back and sign up. Um, also, so you can further tap into these stories and comments, and we might have to blow up Chris's screen to be able to like actually read the titles of some of those. But um, we can um, post them in the uh, with the archive of this discussion. There you go. Okay, so we'll list them out. We'll post them in the archive with the discussion, so you have access to all these resources that are being suggested. Um, and I want to uh, remind everybody to come back next Wednesday. We're um, doing a part two to this, Building School 2.0 Part 2, um, Fostering Inquiry and Connected Practice in the Classroom. Um, and uh, a whole bunch of folks back with us to continue to this discussion, get a little deeper in, and we'll hear from some of the students who are working alongside the teachers on this stuff too. So I think that um, besides thanking all of you for being here today and for sharing your experience and your knowledge and your wisdom and how you've been leaning into this work, it's really it's beautiful and the resources you've been using to as you as you move forward. So thank you so much, and um, thank you for Leanna for behind the scenes, and we'll say good night now. Good night, everybody. <laughs>